Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come worship you one more time. Lord, there is your people who need help. We need help, Lord, to understand the things of Christ. We need to know how we shall get life or how we can get life. How we shall be justified, we who are sinners, who have been separated from you because of sin. And Lord, we thank you for revealing to us the way of salvation, the way of reconciliation with you through your Son, our mediator, whom you accepted as you accepted Job when he made an offering for his friends that they may live. So we also have been accepted in the offering that your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, made on behalf of his friends that we also may live. And so, Lord, now we pray for your blessing upon your word that we may hear what the Spirit says about these things. We pray for the hearts of your people, that you may bring their hearts back to this word, that they may hear. And we pray for those who shall listen also, whenever you have determined for them to come and listen. We pray, Lord, that you grant hearing to them. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 6, I'm sure... Brother Robert is going to be tearing up today because that's going to be the last of our teaching from John chapter 6. <laughs> John chapter 6, verses 65 to 71. John 6, 65 to 71. This is what the word of the Lord says. And he said, Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him being one of the twelve. The title of our sermon is, Lord, to whom shall we go? Lord, to whom shall we go? And we have a lot of things to say. And the way that we teach, if you have ever paid attention we never teach in a way that even if you were not here last week, you would be lost. We always teach like this is the first time that this has been taught. That's how I do it. So we don't say, or like we said last week, we just say things so that everybody is on the same page. No one gets lost. 
So, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. May the Lord teach us this confession of Peter. For that is the most blessed and needful confession for a sinner to ever make in the face of God and Christ. Many answer and have answered that question in many ways, but not in the same way that Peter made this confession. Many say they have somewhere to go for eternal life, and so they walk away from the gospel of grace. They have the law to run to for life. They think they have enough good works of righteousness to run to, to hide in, but the Lord says for us to say, Lord, to whom shall we go? That is a testimony that is given one who is born again of the Holy Spirit. To come to this point in your life is a testimony of the Holy Spirit to realize that you need to go somewhere to get life. And may the Lord teach you to say, I believe, help my unbelief. May he teach you to say, what shall I do to be saved? May he teach you and I to say, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? You see, these are important questions that people don't know about and they have not asked God about. You need someone to go to. You need a who to be saved. Listen to the questions. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? To whom shall we go? What does that say? It's asking for a person. Salvation happens in a person. It doesn't happen in the things that you do. And people say, life sucks. <laughs> and so I need to go on vacation, lie on the beach, get some good relaxation time. Of course, hopefully, that no shark will come and get them. If they're playing by the seashore. But that relaxation is just but for a minute. The question that still needs to be answered by every man, woman, and child is, to whom shall we go for eternal life? What is that saying? That is a question of justification, my friends. That is a question of justification. And the question of justification can only be answered in a who person who is not you. If we don't understand justification, we cannot understand the gospel. If we don't understand the question that the gospel is answering for you and I, we cannot answer the gospel. We can read the Bible and we can go to church. But unless we understand the question that we have to deal with 
we can't understand the gospel. But before we get deeper into the teaching, we need to build some more understanding because there's just so many things to talk about. There's just so many things to talk about. Since the arrival, this is where we are in this story. This is what is happening, the background. We are working all the way from John chapter 4 and we are in John 6. And all that has happened in between has relevance in what is being taught here. So since the arrival of Jesus on the scene in John chapter 2, the popularity of Jesus has been increasing because of the things that he was doing. The excitement about Jesus was on the rise. But none of these people who were excited about Jesus understood who Jesus was except maybe for his mother Mary and Joseph because of the testimony of the angels and of course John the Baptist. But even John the Baptist surprisingly was starting to waver in his faith about who Jesus was when he was in prison. Because if you still remember, he sent a delegation to Jesus saying, well, are you the one? Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? So even after he had made that glorious introduction of Jesus in John chapter 1 and said, this is the one who came before me, he is preferred before me, whose sandal straps I am not even worthy to untie. Having made that glorious introduction of Christ, he finds himself in trouble and he starts to waver in faith and say, are you really the Christ? Are you really the Christ? So, John is also wavering because he too does not really understand who Jesus is in spite of what he has said about Jesus. But this was not just the problem of John alone. This was also the problem with the Jews. Why? Because they had an expectation of the Messiah which was not spiritual. The expectation of Jesus was this is our king to deliver us from the hands of our enemies, the Romans and everything else that they were going through as a nation. So John the Baptist begins to stumble at Jesus because his expectation of Jesus is misplaced. Jesus, come get Herod for me. See, I am in prison. (laughs) The Jews see Jesus doing miracles and they're like, okay, this is the king that we want. Let's make him king. We're going to make you king and you give us those loaves of bread. So the multitude that was following Jesus thought Jesus was about to begin a mega church. That's what they were thinking. In John 2, at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, Jesus had made water into wine. And John records for us and says in John 2, 23 to 25, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. 
Many believed in his name when they saw the signs. But listen to this. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. He knew that they were following him for the wrong reasons. And had no need that anyone should testify of men for he knew what was in men. And John the Apostle would again record for us in John 4 verses 1 and 3 and say, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So Jesus left Judea, which is in the south where Jerusalem is, because his popularity was rising. So he was getting away from these people. So it is here in John 6 that Jesus meets again with the Jews in Galilee in the north. And there's another mega church that's about to begin. And Jesus comes and he empties that church. He empties it. And I pray that uh, he would come and empt a lot of stadiums that we know about. <laughs> so the Jewish, they were not doing any polling then. But in our time, if they had the Gallup poll, the polling on Jesus was good. The polling on Jesus was rising. The exit polling on Jesus was looking so good. And they thought this is surely our king to depose our enemies. The grassroots movement was growing from strength to strength. Especially if you can provide food for them, they keep coming. So the popularity of Jesus was on the rise. And the ministry of John was decreasing because his ministry was being superseded by that of Jesus. So it seems at this point that the Jesus movement is going to take the whole nation by storm. And like I said, it was because of this rising popularity that Jesus determined to leave Judea and go to Galilee. So in Galilee now he's there and he feeds the 5,000 men which if there were women and children, you're looking upwards of 8, 10, 15 to 20,000 people. So you have a good multitude of people there. And these are the ones who followed him, seeking him to make him king, to make him king because of the food that he gave them. Okay. They wanted to make him a prosperity gospel preacher. Yes, Jesus, you have to be our king. Jesus, you have to be our king and you are going to give us the things that we ask you to provide for us. What a glorious prosperity preacher. And we see that in our modern day church and what is happening. It's only those preachers who are promising free loaves of bread from God who have the big numbers. If you preach the true gospel, you always empty the place. Always. Because they are seeking Jesus 
not for the right things, but for their fear of the loves. But the Lord says their theology straight. They have been coming to him for the physical things that they have been seeing. They see Jesus as a tool to their own ambitions. They see Jesus as an end of their own ambitions. Can you hear me that? Jesus is not there for you to use him for whatever you want. Jesus is there to save you from your sins. Jesus is there for your justification, for your sanctification, for your glorification, for you to be able to approach God in peace. That's the reason why Jesus was revealed. So they see Jesus as a means to a better and just society. But Jesus says, coming to me is more than just following me for the things that I am giving you. When you come to me, you do not set the agenda for me or my father. You don't decide what to do with me. I am the sovereign one and I am on a mission by my father. My father has sent me to redeem those that he gave me before the foundation of the world. And it is the will of the father that of all those that he has given me, I shall lose not one. And I shall raise them at the end of the ages. So Jesus says, there is a coming to me that has to happen that is beyond your moving of your hind legs and following him. There's a coming to me, Jesus says, that is only done or caused by my father. To come to me is not physical movement of your body seeking my whereabouts. Remember, they came to Jesus and said, when did you get here? <laughs> When did you get here? <laughs> we checked the bots. We were there. We looked. There were two bots there. And we saw the one that left with the disciples. And we saw the other one. It was still there. And you were not in the first bot. And yet the other bot was there. How did you make it here? You have to tell us about your movement, Jesus. You can't just disappear. <laughs> they are offended at Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, you are accountable to us. Every movement. Is accountable to us. And Jesus says, to come to me is more than you coming and seeking me the way you did. It requires teaching from my father. It requires election by my father. It requires being drawn to me by my father. To come to me is to eat my flesh and to drink my blood that you may have eternal life. That you may never thirst again that is to have everlasting righteousness. To come to me is to believe in me for all your sufficiency in salvation. You are not the one who finds me. You are not the one who finds me. You don't go about looking for me, but it is I who came down out of heaven. I am the one who came down out of heaven to come to this wilderness, to this wilderness where people are dying. I come from heaven 
as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I come down as the good shepherd who has come to seek that which was lost. And to bring you to myself and to bring you to my Father and to give you life and righteousness and to remove that which is in you, death and sin and condemnation and in its place to put what I have in myself, life and righteousness. I've come out of heaven to give you that which the world cannot give. Because in this wilderness, this world, you are dying. The summary of everything in the world is what you have at the cemetery. That is the end of all things in the world. That's the summary. God, the cemetery. That's God's commentary of the world. And Jesus says, I have come to give you life so that your life does not end in the grave, but your life ends in glory. So this is the same wilderness in which all those who were under the law of Moses died. All those who were given manna by Moses were under the law. And what happened to them? Jesus says, this is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who is this bread will live forever. So there's a contrast between law and grace. There's a contrast between law and grace. Those who try to eat God's provision under the law of Moses die. That's Jesus' commentary. But those who eat this bread live and they live forever. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying the letter kills. Can you hear that? Jesus is saying the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And these words he said are spirit and they are life. The flesh profits nothing. So all those who ate the manna died in the wilderness. Why? Because God was teaching that if you are under the law, you can't receive God's promises. And God already taught that when the children of Israel were getting ready to go into the promised land. Moses, the mediator of the law, who was given the law, the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant, did not go into the promised land. You can't go into God's promises by Mount Sinai. You can't enter into God's promises by the law. So who took the children of Israel in the promised land? It was not the law. It was not Moses. Moses could not even take the children of Israel into Canaan. God killed him. It's Joshua who took them into the promised land. And Joshua is the name of Christ. So even in the Old Testament, God was teaching the same theology. So everyone who remains under the law of Moses shall die unless they come and eat this true bread from heaven. And so Jesus would say in John 6.65, Therefore I say to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him 
by my father. To eat this bread does not happen by human will. Jesus is the true bread from heaven. And the eating of this bread does not happen by human will. Yes, Jesus says, you need to come to me to have life, but you can't come. Yes, come to me, but you can't come. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, but you can't come. Until what? Until the Father reveals Christ to you and shows you that you are weary and heavy laden. To be weary and heavy laden is not for everyone. It's only for those who are born again. Because the wearying and the burden that you are feeling is the burden of conscience, of trying to be just before God. That is what Jesus is saying. He is not saying you are carrying a lot of things on your shoulders. No, no. He is saying you are weary and heavy laden. You are seeking righteousness and you can't get it from the things that you are doing. So that revelation of your weariness only happens to those who have been born again. Only born again. You have to understand how you come to Jesus. You only come to Jesus if it has been granted to you by the Father. You need to be chosen by God the Father. You need to have been given to Christ to come to Christ. You need permission from God to come to Christ. You need power to come to Christ. You need the will and desire to come to Christ. And so the psalmist would say, Thy people shall be made willing in the day of your power. You need to be made willing to come to Christ because you are unwilling to come to Christ. You need life to come to Christ because you are born dead in trespasses and sins. Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you need to be born again to come to Christ. You need grace to come to Christ for a man can receive nothing unless it has been given them from above. You need irresistible grace to be drawn into the net of Christ. And praise the Lord, the net of Christ does not break. It doesn't matter how full it gets. It never breaks. It never loses the ones that have been put in the net. Irresistible grace is omnipotent power. It's God's power. It subdues everything into submission. And your heart needs irresistible grace to come to Christ. Otherwise, you are not coming. And that, my brothers and sisters, removes all power, the will, and determination of salvation from the hands of sinners. Jesus is, in this chapter, talking about sovereign grace theology in the salvation of God's people. He gives all power of salvation to God and not man. Men come not as the first mover, not as the first cause, but in response to the drawing of the Father. If you have come to Christ, it was never you. 
is the father who drew you to Christ. Jesus is already given as the bread from heaven. Jesus is already the bread of life from heaven. We are not making him the bread of life. He already is the bread of life. He is already Lord and Christ. He is the one who has descended from heaven to make his life reachable or accessible to us who could not reach it. The life of God is not accessible to us outside the giving of Jesus. So in all things pertaining to salvation, God is always the first mover. Actually, God is the first mover of all things and in all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the second creation, it starts the same way. In the beginning was the word. So John chapter 1, the first five verses or so, those are a replay of Genesis chapter 1. It's the beginning of a new creation. And in the new creation, it's a new creation that brings light and life to those who are dead. Those who are in darkness. It's the creation that brings the children of God to God. It brings life to the children of God who were dead in trespasses and sins. And so John would record for us in John 1, 12, sorry, John 1, verses 12 and 13, and says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. The Armenians will stop there. They stop there, always. Because they are afraid of what the next verse says. <laughs> and this is how the sentence actually completes. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So if Jesus does not come out of heaven to deliver his people from their sins, none will be delivered from their sins. So the incarnation, that is the clothing of God in human flesh, was not an idea of man. It was not coming because men were going to exercise their free will. This was the eternal plan of God. This is how God determined to reveal himself to his people. To make God accessible. If God does not incarnate the way Christ did, there was no way that you'd be able to see God. So the incarnation of Christ was necessary for the giving of life. It was for the purpose of making the life of God accessible to us through the forgiveness of our sins on the cross. And it was to this giving and the eating of this flesh that the Jews said, this is a hard saying. This is a difficult statement. Who can hear this? Who can hear this stuff, Jesus? Who can hear the sovereignty of God in salvation? And say, yes, Lord. Who can hear that salvation is the work of Christ alone? And say, yes, Lord. It is a hard saying. Because it puts life and death 
in the hands of God and not man. So I'd say, it puts justification and condemnation in the hands of God and not man. Unless you understand that you are nothing and that there's nothing that you can actually do to change your eternal state, you will never sing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace is for the ones who have realized that they are nothing and they have nothing in themselves that they can command themselves before God and say, God, look at me. Look at how pretty I am. God, look at my shirt, Charlie. Look at my haircut. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Jesus says, are you offended by the terms of salvation? Does this offend you? Does it offend you that God is absolutely sovereign? Does it offend you that God elects who gets saved and who does not get saved? Is it a scandal? Does it cause you outrage that he does whatever pleases him? Does it offend you that Jesus says, I am the truth, the way, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by me? Because I know it offended Oprah. It offends Oprah even right now. It offends her so much. If you look at the YouTube clip, I mean, she's actually mad. She's angry. But she's tumbling at the cross. <laughs> she, and praise the Lord, she is tumbling at the cross. I needed to stumble some more. But Jesus says, But blessed are those who are not offended by me. So now we have to talk about blessing because a lot of people say, well, when you have a new car and a new house and you're healthy, then that's God's blessing. Jesus says, no. The blessing of God is you are not stumbling. You are not offended by the doctrines of grace. You are not stumbling at God's election and the way that he accepts sinners. We can't remove the offense of the cross and still have the gospel. If we remove the offense of the cross, we are left with a gospel that does not save. If I go to Oprah and tell her about a gospel that does not have the cross, it won't offend her, and that gospel does not save. Because you see, when you have the cross, you have limited atonement. It's saying it does not save everybody, but it saves all that the Father gave to Christ to save. And men won't hear that. They get offended and so they stumble at the cross. And Peter will say, and to this end, they were appointed. And he doesn't apologize for that. He doesn't say, oh, oops, I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> if we remove the offense, like I said, we are left with no gospel. A works righteousness gospel is nothing but an attempt to remove the offense of the cross. And people who believe a lie will die in their sins. God has from eternity attached your life and righteousness and standing 
in believing his own son. And that is why the truth of the gospel has to be defended. It has to be declared and it has to be taught. Because there's no other way, there's no other name that God has given for your salvation. So we see Jesus was not an ear tickler. Jesus was not passing a plate trying to get money from people. And because Jesus was not an ear tickler, these statements offended people. And so John recorded for us and said in John 6 verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They walked with him no more. Those disciples who had been flocking to him in droves said, Enough, Jesus. We have tried to bear with you, but we can't take this anymore. This is too much. Put flesh and blood to this. This was a sorrowful sight. If you knew what we know now about how God saves sinners, and you see this multitude of people walking away, from the one who is life. Just because they can't stand what Jesus is saying. That said, that said, to see Jesus come down here, he says, how God saves sinners. And we all just walk out and say, we can't hear this. Okay? And yet, this is the one who understands about salvation. He is the one who understands about eternal condemnation. And he's the one who can lift you out of condemnation to life. So these people stumble because the terms of salvation were very high and sounded very harsh to the flesh. But the issue is the flesh. And I'll tell you, as I always say, believing in Christ is the hardest thing that a man will ever do in all of eternity. Don't take it for granted that you know something about Jesus. He has not given it to more than 6 billion people in the world. He has not given it. It's the hardest thing that you ever do to come to the knowledge of who Christ is and to say, yes, Lord. You have to overcome the offense of the cross before you can come to Christ. And if you have come to Christ, God has given you the grace to overcome the offense of the cross. You just don't come to Christ. And a lot of the people in these big stadiums are yet to come to the cross. Because if you bring the true gospel, guess what? They're not coming next week. They're not coming. They'll say, who then can be saved? Now you're talking. <laughs> Now, they're getting close to Jesus. If you come to that point, you're starting to understand what God is teaching. So the apostle John tells us that many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They went back where? To following Moses. They went back to works righteousness because they refused what Jesus was offering. Jesus was offering them grace and they could not take the terms of grace. And so they went back 
they went back to the law, they went back to Moses, they refused to eat what he was offering them. Okay? They said, Jesus, give us something to eat. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you the free loaves of bread that you want. I'm going to give you myself. And they get offended. They refuse what Jesus is giving them. And in turn, Jesus refuses to give them what they wanted. He didn't make any more bread. <laughs> so, it was a stalemate, but not necessarily because Jesus always wins. He's God. <laughs> Jesus does not care if anybody comes or doesn't come. His life does not get better because someone showed up. I, I love the preaching of some preacher. When Whitney Houston died, and he was like, oh, God is so happy that uh, Whitney is in heaven. He just could not wait for her to come. Heaven will never be the same that Whitney Houston is in heaven. <laughs> what foolishness. That's foolishness. Remember the contest. The contest here in John chapter 6 is about how God saves sinners. We need to work that. The contest in this whole chapter is how does one come to God? How is one saved to eternal life? How does that happen? It is about the bread that Moses gave, which is the law. So the background here is the law and Jesus shows up and he is putting the law in its proper perspective and what the law can give and what Jesus gives. That's the issue. So it's about the bread that Moses gave or what Jesus gives. Which is better, the bread of Moses or the bread that Jesus gives? It is about the law of Moses versus the grace that Jesus gives in salvation. That is this focal point of the discussion. Law versus grace are the only categories by which one can have a standing before God. By which they can be justified and attain to life and there are no other categories for salvation. And these two categories cannot be mixed. You can't hybridize them. If you refuse Christ alone, you can only default back to law. And so, John's way of communicating that to us was, they walked with Jesus no more. They went back. They went back to the law. And such are many who profess to have come to Christ, but when they hear the true gospel terms, they go back. Where do they go back? They go back to works. Yes, they may continue to come to church. But they have already gone back to what they used to do before. And when the Jews went back, John says, they stopped walking with Jesus no more. They went back to the law and stopped Walking with Jesus no more. 
everyone who goes back to the law for righteousness because grace is too much for them stops to walk with Jesus no more. You got here that understand. Once you stop following Jesus and you want to do your own works of righteousness, that's a distinction. You stop following Jesus. You go back to the law, you automatically stop following Jesus. Whether you know it or not, it doesn't matter. That's how God works. So to that point, Apostle Paul would come and say in Galatians 5, verses 3 to 5. Same theology. He says, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So if you go back to the law for life or justification, you become indebted to do the whole law for your justification. You become alienated. You become cut off, severed from Christ. And that is the same as saying you walk with Jesus no more. So the apostle here, Apostle Paul, is giving a theological understanding of the relationship between law and grace as the only two grounds or basis of justification. He says, one is justified only by the deeds of the law, only by the deeds of the law, which is works righteousness, or by the grace of God in Christ. And if you attempt to drag any part of the law into your justification, then you lose grace as the basis of justification. Okay, So grace stands alone and the law stands alone. So if you go to the law, you have fallen from your standing in grace. It's not saying you have lost salvation. Apostle Paul is saying, if you are saved by grace, you remain saved by grace. If you are going to be dilly-darling and say you have one foot in law and one foot in grace, you're not going to make it. That's not how God works. He says, if you mix grace with anything, you have lost your ability to appeal to God for acceptance on the basis of the merits of Christ alone. Okay. Got to hear that. You have to understand that. So the apostle says. If you go to the law. You have fallen from your standing in grace. And that means you have lost the privilege. You have lost the right. To seek or appeal to God for justification. On the basis of the work of Christ. You have forfeited your right to appeal to the righteousness of Christ before God. And that is the problem with the Judaizers. Because the Judaizers came to the church, the Galatian church, and said, well, 
Yes, Christ died for our sins. Yes, he resurrected for our justification. But for you to be completely accepted by God, guess what? You need to add circumcision. And Apostle Paul said, no, if you add any part of the law, then you have taken the whole law. And you are liable to do the whole law. You don't just pick and choose what elements of the law you want to do. You either stand holy by the law or you stand holy on Christ. You don't mix. You have to understand that. But he says, of those who know the truth, he says, but we, makes a distinction. Those who are mixing law and grace and those who are standing on grace, he says, but we, this group, through the spirit, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, which is by what? By faith and not by works. So you see the distinction. And so the Jews in John 6 have rejected grace for their works. And so they stopped following Jesus. They leave Jesus. They pick up their things and they go. And in verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Do you also want to go away? So Jesus, you could say Jesus was mad at this point. Jesus continued to press even on the twelve and says, Forget all these who have departed. What do you have to say about me, about all the things that I have just said to you? Do you also want to go away and follow their fate? Do you also want to go back to Moses? And it's not like Jesus didn't know what their response was. But he was teaching them about faith. He was teaching them about who is in control of salvation. He was teaching them about how they came to him. And Jesus is saying, don't think you are any better than those who left. You are not different than them. The only reason why you are here is because I chose you. Otherwise, you'd have been gone like them. But you have remained. Why? Because you were given to me by the Father. So this is the application of what Jesus has been talking about in the previous verses. That this is the will of the Father. Right? Of all those that he gave the Son who come to him. So these ones who remain are remaining because they are not offended by Jesus. So those who remain when the true terms of salvation are taught, are given, are the ones who have been given to Christ by the Father. And that's how we know who is of the truth and who is not. Okay. So if the Father does not give anyone to Christ, they get offended at the gospel. You have a lot of religious people, very nice religious people. They will say, we go to church. They do all these things. But Always, when it comes down to the nitty-gritties of how salvation actually happens, they never want to hear it. So, what then are they believing about God? They are not born again. They are not Christians. Yes, they go to church. If you are a Christian, you can't be offended by what Jesus says. 
Because you have the spirit of God in you and the spirit of God, even if you get offended for a minute, he will give you the correction. He will correct you. He will cause you to accept what Jesus is saying. Okay. Um, I'm going to get one more of that so that it will be spinning. So Jesus, by this statement, is showing them who is in charge of salvation. And Jesus has given a similar test in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 17, in Caesarea Philippi. But this test in Matthew 16 was not as go hard or go home like this one in John 6. The John 6 one is hard. Even the Pope can't take that. <laughs> That's too hard for the Pope. You can't hear this. Who can hear this? This is a hard thing. <laughs> Praise the Lord. In John, sorry, in Matthew 16, this is what Matthew recorded for us. He said, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist and some Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon by Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus was asking his disciples about what men were saying about him, not because he didn't know, but he was using that to test their own testimony or confession of him to see if they had been learning anything about himself. And of course, he also knew what they did not know about him. <laughs> but God uses this opportunity to build the testimony about salvation and says, everything else said and done. Your eternity rests on this. How do you answer that question? Who do you say Christ is? So, the first and foremost thing that you have to answer when it comes to the eternal state of your soul is what do you say? What's your testimony of Jesus? Okay. What's your testimony of Jesus? And so Jesus says nothing about what other men say. He did not even address it. He says that is not important. At the end of the day, your salvation is not what I say about Jesus. It's not about what your parents say about Jesus. It's about who do you say that I am? Who do you say? So Jesus brings it down to you and him. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that was a twofold confession. Jesus is the Messiah, which means the Christ. That speaks to his human nature. And the son of the living God. And that speaks to his deity as God. And Jesus said, come here, Peter. What a smart guy you are. Come here and get some jolly ranchers, Abriana. No, Jesus says, Peter, you did not come up with that. 
that is beyond the ability of human flesh to figure out. That is beyond your resources to come up with. You have reason higher than your pay grade. And so Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, by Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So the blessing, again, is that you make the right confession of the person of Jesus. And Jesus says, no, Peter, I'm not going to give you any marks for that. I, I know who revealed me to you is my Father who is in heaven. So what's the point? There are a lot of points. I'm not going to dwell much on them. But what I want you to see is that in John 6, Peter made some confessions about Jesus. And he said, we have nowhere to go. You have the words of eternal life. And those were true statements. But Jesus continued on his argument of sovereign grace theology to say, Peter, I am not going to give you an ounce of credit to having figured me out. And this is consistent Jesus theology. In Matthew 16, as we read, Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. You have no free will. You have no resources to figure me out. I'm not going to honor you for your confession. I'm not going to give you credit for your confession. I'm going to give my father the credit for making this statement through you. Okay. So Jesus is doing exactly the same in John 6. He's doing the same. So he tests the disciples. He tests the disciples as a group, but more harshly. And he says, do you also want to go away? They have to come up with a response right away. They are looking cold and helpless. Jesus is serious. But listen to the beauty of solving grace theology. I need you to get this point. They have come to the end of themselves. They see that Jesus is mad. I mean, if you were talking man to man, you're looking at Jesus at this point. He does not have a smile on his face. He's really going hard. And yet God the Father comes to their rescue. He comes to their rescue through Peter, again, as he did before, as we just read. And Peter gives another high Christological confession of Jesus and says in verse 68 and 69, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That twofold confession of Jesus. Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you, not Mohammed, you, not anybody else, not the Pope, not anybody. You, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. What is that saying? It is saying that Peter had been given understanding about who Jesus is and what Jesus had been teaching by the Father himself. And remember what Jesus had said in John 6, 44 and 45. He says, no one can come to me, which means no one can make this Christological confession and say the right things about me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
and I will raise him up at the last day. And then he says, it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So I can say a whole lot of things that are true. And unless God teaches you, you are not coming to Christ. But if you say amen to what I am saying, it's not your mind that is doing that. It's God who is causing you to amen his own words. Those who have not been taught of the Father have found Jesus too hard to hear. And so they left him. But the ones who have been taught by the Father, they stay behind even though uneasily. And because they've been taught, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? So the Father, this is the content of what the Father teaches you. The Father has taught us that there is nowhere else to go. That is the confession of the faith that God gives. The faith that God gives does not leave you with any other room to add to your acceptance by God. True repentance is coming to the conclusion that there is nowhere else to go for salvation. That's repentance. And there is nothing else that justifies outside Jesus himself. The Lord may raise some contrary winds of life as he is apt to. God may bring you to a very difficult situation as he did with his disciples. Some storms of life that will make you want to give up and doubt your own salvation. But this is the exhortation from Peter. Remain steadfast with the confession and say, Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life because it's coming it's coming. And I like what Elder Morris says about life. He says, at any point in time, you are either getting out of a crisis, you are in a crisis, or you're entering a crisis. And when that moment comes, if you're one of those, the confession remains, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. What words of life? Jesus has words of life because he came down from heaven as the surety of those that the Father gave to him to save. And he came with a mission to accomplish the will of the Father for these people to redeem that which was lost. He came to sanctify them and to give them a new birth, to justify them, to give them water that springs up to eternal life, to give them the very eternal life, and even to glorify them, to teach them the truth, to reconcile them to God, to make peace with God for them, to remove them from condemnation of the law, to make them the true children of God, to give them life and light to give them the true bread and true drink. And that is to say, to justify them. So, since we are talking about this, 
there's actually an understanding of repentance that we can get from this. Many professors of Christianity press repentance as turning away from your sin 100% before you can get the blessing of justification. But in this story, we have a true biblical portrait of true repentance. It's not about stopping from going to some club or drinking this beer or smoking this cigar. True biblical repentance is in the question, to whom shall we go to be saved? That's repentance. If you have come to that realization, that's true biblical repentance. To whom shall we go to be saved? Jesus, we can't go anywhere or to nobody else for you have the words of eternal life. You have spoken to us the words of eternal life. So true repentance is in one coming to this point in which they realize that there's nowhere else to go for justification. Nothing else that they can do for justification. Coming to the point that there's absolutely nothing that one can do to improve or add the justification that is in Jesus Christ. There's no amount of stopping sin that will justify you. Can you hear me? Sin is more than stopping doing things. A lot of people define sin in only do and don'ts context. Sin is deeper than the skin surface. Sin is the nature of being. That's who we are. It's our makeup. It's our constitution. So, Sister Becca, whether you do anything or not, it doesn't matter. Yes, sinner. So, even if you sit there for the next 500 years, you still need the cross. I'll bring you all the food, by the way. You still need the cross. Even if you lie in your bed and never wake up from when you were born until you die, you still need the cross. You are still a sinner. You never went anywhere, but you still need to repent. So what then is repentance? Is turning to Christ and saying, Lord, to whom shall I go to be saved? That's repentance. So our justification, our justification, is in Christ. So when we turn to Christ and say, now I am standing on the righteousness of Christ alone, that's repentance, folks. That's true repentance. <laughs> you, you can't have any better repentance than to say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And so Peter has learned from the Father and has repented to Christ because the Jews repented to the law. They repented Two, Moses, the disciples were Jews. They could also have repented and went to the law, but they repented and stayed with Christ. So Peter has eaten the true bread out of heaven. He has eaten the flesh of Christ by faith, and he has drank the blood of Christ by faith. He has wrestled with Christ as Jacob wrestled with Christ. In Genesis 32, 26. Remember the encounter 
of Jacob with the angel. And Jacob wrestled with the angel. Right? Until daybreak. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob is holding on to Christ. That was Christ that he was holding on to. And he said, Christ, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Why? Because I know you alone have the blessings of God. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Isn't that a similar confession of we have nowhere to go? To whom shall we go? We are holding to you, Christ. We are holding. You have to bless us with the words of eternal life. You have eternal life. You alone possess the blessings of God. Do whatever you want with us. We lie here helpless before your feet. But we are not moving. We are not going anywhere. And so Peter said, Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. As I said earlier, the identity of Christ is too important in salvation. The Mormons don't believe in the true identity of Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in the true identity of Christ. Even though they may say things that are correct as far as the gospel and say Jesus died and resurrected. Yes, that's true. That's what the Bible says. But if the identity of Christ is wrong, that does not help anybody. They are still believing in a false Christ. If I come and say, Brother Michael died and resurrected, and he may actually have done so, but if he is not the God-man, guess what? I am believing in a false Christ. So the identity of Christ is central, very critical to the work of Christ. Okay. So Jesus, Jesus does not give Peter, the credit for making the confession. God won't give you the credit of coming to Christ. God will never give you credit for anything that pertains to his son as far as you're standing before him. Everything about Christ is given to you. Faith is given. Repentance is given. A new birth is given. Justification. Sanctification. All those are Gifts of God in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is working his theology to say, okay, for the ones who have remained, we are getting close to the end. Getting close. Getting, getting close. I, I debated on splitting the very last verse about Judas, but then it was going to take me to somewhere where I needed to spend another three weeks so I said, like, no, uh, we're going to try and squeeze extra 10 minutes here and just finish it. And then I'll talk about it later, some other time. But let, let's keep talking about this. Jesus does not give Peter the credit for staying. He does not give the disciples the credit and honor for figuring Christ out. Jesus says, you're only standing because I am keeping you from stumbling. I am the one who has kept you from stumbling. And Jude would later come and say, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. 
So praise the Lord that you have been kept from stumbling. You have the greatest assurance that even the first Adam did not have. Adam, the first Adam, was not kept from falling. But God's promise to you is that he is able to keep you from falling. So you actually are better off because of the fall, because if the fall had not happened, it meant that you had to stand on your own to be accepted by God. So when we fell, in the words of, I don't remember the preacher, who said it, but he said, when Adam fell, we did not fall down, we fell up. We fell up because then we were in Christ. And Christ gave us our righteousness that we would stand before God by his own merits. So praise the Lord. So the Lord says, we are talking about salvation and how salvation works. And this is where we are. You who remain standing, I want to let you know and understand how you are standing. He says, the only reason why you are standing is because I chose you. I chose you, and yet one of you is a devil. So Jesus moved the discussion back to himself and says, I am the one doing this. Me and my father are the ones who determine your eternal state. I chose you. You did not choose me, and you only remain here because I am keeping you. And you remain standing because you are the ones that the Father gave to me. And if you remember in John 17, he's going to pray and you say, I kept all those that you gave me. Right? And these are the ones that he was praying for. And he would also pray for us in John 15, if I remember. He prayed for all those who shall come to Christ by the testimony of his word, and those who preached it. So according to Jesus, election is very important for one to have a proper view of salvation. It is critical to understanding the work of Christ. It is all about him and God's sovereign will, and Jesus asserts his sovereignty in election and salvation. He says, I chose the twelve, but amongst the twelve, I also chose one who is a devil. How is that possible, Jesus? The Holy One of Israel, how would you have the devil uh, amongst those who belong to you? And a lot of people will struggle with that. Because they see the devil as a very significant rival to Jesus. They do not see the devil as an instrument in Jesus' hands. Doing his bidding. This is high sovereignty. Jesus chose Judas to be among the twelve. Jesus knew who Judas was from the beginning. He knew the mission from eternity and it was that he would bring life to his people through the betrayal by this one who is an agent of the devil. And so God raised hundreds of generations of Judas' line 
for this very purpose. Judas is under the sovereign power of God. And he can't escape. Yes, he does whatever he has to do, that which is in his own heart. But it is also exactly what God decreed to be done by Judas. God was not lucky that Judas was just around the corner when Jesus showed up. And so God gathered all the resources around and in Judas to make sure that this work of Christ would not fail. Judas feels like, Judas feels like he is doing things freely, just as you and I, when we sin and do everything, not necessarily sin, when we do everything that we do, we feel like we are making the decisions. But let me tell you the honest truth. God is in control of every little decision that we make. There's more behind the scenes than what we can feel, than what we can see. There's more behind the scenes than free will or the freedom of Judas. Judas is under the chains of divine sovereignty. It is not the evil in Judas or the devil that is controlling things. We have to forget that. It is the sovereignty of God that is controlling every aspect of this. The devil is behind the scenes. And he enters and he commands Judas. Right? When Christ is about to be put on the cross, the devil enters Judas. Judas is under the command of the devil. But that's not the end of the story. Who is in control of Judas and the devil? What is the devil doing here anyway? What is he doing in Judea at this time? Why doesn't he go to Galilee? Who brought him here at this time? What does he know about this? He knows something about it. He knows he has a part to play in this whole transaction. He is there at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus when Jesus is tempted and he's there at the end of the ministry of Jesus. The devil knows. And how did he know that? He is under a divine command because this is the work of God that has to be fulfilled. When Jesus gave Judas the morsel of bread, John tells us that immediately the devil entered Judas. And Jesus speaks to Judas and yet also speaks past Judas and says to the devil, whatever you do, do it quickly. Whatever you do, do it quickly. That is a sovereign command. This is absolute sovereignty. Judas does everything freely in his mind, but it is not as free as people say. Because people say, oh, Judas could have repented. He had the free will. He could have said, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's not true. <laughs> because the cross was ordained from eternity. And it had to happen. It had to happen. The devil is there as an instrument in God's hands, in Jesus' hands. Because prior, remember what Jesus said to Peter and the disciples. He said, Peter, the devil 
had demanded to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith fails not. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, I had a conversation with the devil. And he came and he thought, you are the one who was supposed to betray me. So the devil is thinking, it doesn't be Peter. Look at his mouth. Look at what Peter is saying. <laughs> this is the man that I have to get. And when it comes to the actual time of crucifixion, by giving the morsel of bread, the devil already knows that's the one that I'm supposed to take control of. The sovereignty. The sovereignty. The sovereignty. So, men don't understand the sovereignty of God because they think, they think Judas was just a bad guy. Judas was a bad guy, just like everybody else. But we are no different than Judas. The only difference between Judas and us is that we have the high priest. <laughs> we have Jesus. We have someone who stood before us and for us and he prayed that our faith will not fail. And so Jesus would say, and truly the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And if you go and read, I'm not going to read this, but if you go and read John 13, verses 21 to 30, that's where you have the full account of what transpired just before Jesus was put on the cross, the betrayal and how everything happened there. But I wanted to draw you to some very important statement that John put there for us. He said in verse 30, Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. It was night. Very purposeful language. It was night. Why? Because Judas was the ultimate representation of darkness. And that is very purposeful from the pen of John by the Holy Spirit. So what are we to say to all this? We have learned a lot of things in this chapter. But as to what we can take home from what we learned today. If we read the theology of Jesus and it does not get our hearts to be afraid, then God has not taught us. Because when you hear the terms of sovereign grace theology, it has to leave you helpless. And helplessness is a necessary step of true repentance. To discover that there's nothing that I can do to be saved. Even if God leaves me 1% of the work, I am done. I am tossed. I won't be able to make it. If anything is left up to me, I won't be able to be saved. So sovereign grace theology has to teach us to fear. You see, John Newton, he knew something about grace. Because God gave him over to his sin. And if you have not really experienced your sin, you are going to come up with all foolishness about theology, about how God says, oh yeah, of course I have to add something to that. It's foolishness. Because you don't realize how high and lofty the terms of salvation are if they require not an angel, but the Son of God himself to come and do it. 
We are to see the glory of God in election. Election is a doctrine that you have to glory in. It's not a doctrine to argue about. It's a doctrine to make your heart leap with joy that, oh Lord, you remembered me. We are to see that there's more to God than God is love. There's more to God than God is love. We are to see that the glory in Christ is the driver of all the things of God. We are to thank God for the gospel of grace. For outside grace, there's no hope for you and I. We have to go down on our knees and thank God for choosing us unto salvation. If God does not choose you, you have no other way to be reconciled to him. And so our collective confession and testimony has to be the same that Peter gave and say, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And to whom shall we go is the question that the Roman Catholic, the Armenians, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the SDAs are yet to find an answer for. If they have even started to ask that question. We can't walk away from Jesus. We can't walk away from grace. Because if we do, Christ will not walk with us anymore. We can't walk away from grace. Hold on to grace and grace will lead you home. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for choosing us in Christ. Thank you for giving us the grace to accept the offense of the cross. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the grace to remain standing and to keep us from stumbling when the true gospel is taught and preached. For there's much foolishness that is called the gospel that is no gospel and that has nothing to do with what, what Christ accomplished on the cross. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who teaches us these things to be true, who gives us the internal witness that Christ is as real as even more than ourselves. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you for provision. We thank you for the families that you have given us. We thank you for the Loba family and bringing them here again. And Lord, we pray your blessings, travel mercies upon them. We pray that you would continue to stir this message in their hearts as they drive back home. And Lord, we pray for all the brethren, our brethren, who are in Pittsburgh also, who for one reason or another they were not able to be here with us and yet they are with us in spirit and in the truth of the gospel. We pray for their families. We pray, Lord, that you also would grant us a wonderful time of communion with them. Lord, we just thank you for the days ahead of us and we ask your grace upon all your people wherever they are called. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.